0: Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord.
1: As the kids are coming out... um there we go, okay. As the kids are going out, let me go ahead and introduce uh, Victor to you guys. So Victor Boutros um, is the head of the Human Trafficking Institute, but before that, he worked as a federal prosecutor combating uh, human trafficking here for the United States. And in that time, a number of years back, you and uh, Gary Haugen, the head of, uh, and founder of uh, IJM, co-wrote a book called The Locust Effect, which if you have not read The Locust Effect, you should go ahead and do it, it's a 2014 book that highlights and looks at the the issue of everyday violence for the poorest so of the poor and why the justice work that you guys do that organizations like IJM do needs to uh, kind of battle at that governmental and, uh, and infrastructure level of creating places of safety. Um, But in 2015, uh, you left as a federal prosecutor, and then uh, within a year or a year later, you and John Richmond, who's a uh, part of our church here, uh, many of you guys know John, uh, founded the, uh, co-founded the Human Trafficking Institute. What can you tell us about the Human Trafficking Institute? What do you guys do?
2: So the Human Trafficking Institute is a group of former federal prosecutors, former FBI agents, uh, former victim uh, witness specialists who partner with developing countries around the world To help them build specialized anti-trafficking units uh, that can kind of move upstream and stop traffickers directly and so we are currently partnering with Uganda and Belize we are not a faith-based organization although the founders that uh, founded it based on their faith commitment but we are not a faith-based organization and and, uh, that's true that's what we do we try to measurably decimate trafficking in developing world countries by partnering with them in that way
1: Um, Before you share with us, I'm going to say a prayer for you and then uh, let you share what God put on your heart for us this morning. Lord God, I thank you for Victor and for the work that they do at the Human Trafficking Institute and for others around the world who are fighting on the front lines this uh, global blight of human trafficking and modern-day slavery. I pray for your grace and mercy upon uh, Victor as he shares and for our hearts to be open to what you would say to us this day. Open us, Lord, to things that we need to know and uh, guide us to be courageous to step forward into doing them as well. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, good morning. It is a great privilege to be with you all
2: this morning, and I uh, want to thank Johnny for inviting me to be out here with you on this Freedom Sunday. I first met Johnny uh, many years ago when he was still a Timothy at the False Church, and it is um, just so encouraging to see how Christ Church Vienna has grown so deeply. I myself have uh, many dear friends here, some of whom have walked really closely with me uh, in my own journey of understanding more deeply God's passion for justice and Uh, Blair Burns, who's here, has been a close friend in that process, and Eric Ha, and John Richmond, and Melissa, we just uh, have some dear friends here. So it is really deeply an honor for me to get to be with you all um, this morning. So one of the things I want to do this morning is really try and intentionally draw a line between what is happening in the world today in terms of modern slavery and the scripture passages that we talked about this morning. And so I want to first start with talking about what's happening in the world today. I think as we see the connection between these two things, between what's happening in the world today and our scripture passages, I, I think what's in the center of that, what, what's at the, the nexus of those two dots, is what God is calling us to. And I think that is the stewardship of tangible hope. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first, what's happening in the world today? Uh, I want to introduce you to a guy named Barry Glasser. Uh, Glasser is a German national. He moved to Uganda, uh, this country in East Africa, a number of years ago. And he began to go to poor families, particularly in Uganda, and tell them uh, that he had built a home that was really designed to care for young girls who had been through significant sexual trauma. And he said that we, you know, we care about your girls, we want them to find healing. Uh, I also have Western donors who care about their education and want to help fund their education. And uh, many families felt like this was an extraordinary opportunity, particularly for their daughters who had been through some kind of uh, sexual trauma or violence. And so they entrusted their daughters to him. Uh, but instead of helping them heal, he began to rape them and sell them to others who would come to his guest house. And this has been going on for years in Uganda. It's completely against the law, and yet it has flourished openly for many years. As I learned about Barry and what he has uh, been doing over the last decade or so, uh, candidly, it it just makes my blood boil. It makes you so mad to think about what he's doing to these uh, young girls. Uh, And over time, I learned that his story is not an anomaly, but it's actually replicated on a massive scale around the globe. In fact, the best estimates suggest that in the world today, if we just had a snapshot of every victim in the world spread across the stage, we'd have about 25 million snapshots. That is, there are about 25 million people around the globe who right now are held in some form of, of the same story. And... To be completely honest, that that number being so large, and that's just a snapshot of what's happening today. If we look at sort of a five-year time horizon, some say it's closer to 89 million because traffickers are just churning through victims, acquiring new ones, discarding old ones. Now, that's just a big, mind-numbing number, but to put that into perspective, when you and I were growing up reading about the transatlantic slave trade, historians tell us that during that 400-year period of the transatlantic slave trade, there were about 12 million people enslaved. So 12 million people over 400 years. Today, there are more than double that, 25 million around the world. And uh, to be honest, as I learned about the scope of the problem, I actually found it to be profoundly unhelpful. As I looked back at my own experience of that, I just found myself sort of shutting down emotionally. I think what happens is because God is a God of compassion and we are made in his image, we actually instinctively draw near to pain for the purpose of helping people out of it. But if we start to really believe that there is nothing that we can meaningfully do to make a dent in that pain, then it's almost like getting too close to a fire that you can't put out. And you feel like, I can't afford to draw near to this pain. It's, it, I can't put, I got to back away. I'm going to get burned. And that is how I felt as I learned about the scope of the problem. I really started feeling like I don't even want to hear from another anti-trafficking organization. Because whatever you tell me, I really, I'm not going to say this out loud, but whatever you tell me, I feel like it's just going to be a drop in the ocean. It's not really going to make a difference. And of course, you don't say that out loud. It feels rude and demoralizing, but that is how I felt at the time. And and I've since met a bunch of other people who feel that way. Maybe you feel that way. And so the question for us is, how does what we're witnessing and experiencing in the world today connect up with those scripture readings that we heard this morning? Our Old Testament reading this morning was one of now many familiar passages about God's passion for justice and if I were preaching 20 years ago, that would actually be the whole sermon. It would just be about God's passion for justice, which in the North American church for many, many years had grown incredibly unfamiliar. But actually thanks to uh, the courageous leadership of our friends at IJM and other Christian leaders, that's not the case anymore. There's been like this incredible transformation where we now as the North American church have recovered, its, we've recovered our clarity around God's character as a God who takes sides and who has declared himself to be the God of justice and a God who's called his people as the body of Christ to do justice. So if we fast forward 20 years to where we are today, we're actually in quite a different place. In fact, like the stewards in the parable of the talents, we know what the master wants. He's made it really clear learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. It's clear. The problem for us, I think, is that it can feel incredibly risky. I don't know about you, I always felt sorry for that servant that got entrusted with one talent. I mean, he didn't steal it, he didn't misuse it, he didn't waste it. He was just afraid to risk losing it. And I myself know what it feels like to feel scared about risking our talents and resources, which is really just another way of saying our hope. What if we lose? I think the fear of losing can be so powerful that we simply choose to play it safe, not to really put our hope on the line to bury our talent in the sand. But the master is inviting us out of that cocoon of safety and into a much grander adventure. After all, our master is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 who are in safety to go after the one who finds herself alone, surrounded by hungry wolves. For our Savior, there are no acceptable casualties. He will not abide even one. The value of the one is so great that no resources will be spared. Every risk will be taken to save her. Now, to be honest, I think most of us don't really know that much about shepherding and have no special affinity for sheep. But we do recognize this sort of protective, whatever-it-takes instincts in ourselves as the heart of a father or mother. If we learned, if I learned, that my own 12-year-old daughter was swept into this nightmare, wouldn't we instantly scrap the calendar, get on a plane, and access every relationship, every resource at our disposal to protect her? Whatever it takes. I think it's natural that we would feel differently if our own child were swept into this nightmare then, if we hear you know, another sad story about a child in a faraway land. I don't even think God begrudges us our instinctual preference for our own children. In fact, he shares it. He just has this much larger family that he's adopted us into. For him, every child languishing in domestic servitude, every girl crying out for help Under the thumb of a trafficker is his very own child, whom he has known by name and treasured from the dawn of time, for whom he would lay down his own life. To traffickers, the child is just little more than easy prey, a pliant work mule to be used and then discarded. But to Jesus, she's a daughter of the king. And yet, Many of our anti-trafficking efforts today have no impact on the traffickers' profits. Instead, they focus on two other very important things. One is reducing the vulnerability of potential victims. The other is caring for survivors. Those are both essential, but if we don't actually stop the traffickers, then we end up in this cycle of devastation where there's more and more traffickers exploiting more and more victims who need more and more survivor care, and it starts to feel like this bottomless pit of need. It feels like we can't build shelters fast enough to keep up with all the victims who need our care. Traffickers are really motivated by one thing, and that's money. It's an economic crime. If you, heat map the, if you heat map the globe, what you'll find is this very predictable pattern, which is the business of trafficking just explodes wherever the laws are not enforced. Doesn't matter if there's laws in the books, all that traffickers care about is whether those laws are actually enforced. So if you'll advance the slide, one more. One of the things that was very striking to me was discovering that the victims are not evenly distributed around the globe. In fact, the vast majority of the world's victims today are in developing countries. Ninety-three percent of the victims in the world right now are in developing countries. This is one huge difference from what we think about when we think about transatlantic slavery. We think about transatlantic slavery as bringing a bunch of people from the developing world to the developed world where they were enslaved. Today, 93% of the victims are in the developing world. What that means is even if we completely eliminated trafficking entirely in the United States, in Canada, in Western Europe, Australia, and Japan, we'd still have 93% of the victims out there Well, why? Why is it so disproportionate in the developing world? If you go to the next slide. One reason is because there are developing countries right now where you are literally more likely to be struck by lightning than to go to jail for openly owning a slave. Literally, like the statistician would say, you ought to be more concerned about lightning than jail. They're not worried about lightning, and they're not worried about going to jail. And so trafficking is flourishing. In fact, trafficking has now become the world's fastest growing crime. Faster than drug trafficking, faster than gun trafficking. Why? Because traffickers this year are going to bring in more than $150 billion in profits. What that means is if traffickers were incorporated, they would outperform Apple, Exxon, Samsung, BP, and Microsoft combined. It's become big business and as we looked at this landscape we began to ask the question what if we could move upstream and not just deal with the tragic consequences of trafficking after the fact when it's so so hard to recover from that kind of trauma but could we actually move upstream and stop it at its source which is really the trafficker because if we can stop the trafficker then not only do we free their current victims but we spare that future stream of victims from having to spend years enduring during that trauma or struggling to recover from it. So when I was at the Justice Department, we launched a pilot to try and improve the capacity of the federal government to stop traffickers. We went to 94 federal districts and invited them to compete for six slots that would participate in the pilot. And uh, in those districts, we would basically do three things. We would help them build a specialized unit that would focus on trafficking. We put them through a mini law enforcement academy where we walked them through the strategies that we'd seen be effective at each stage of the process. And then we'd pair them up with me or another federal prosecutor in our national unit and roll up our sleeves and just start working cases together. And as you can imagine, there's all kinds of challenges that would come up that you never talked about in the classroom, but at least you had someone with you who had done this before who could help you solve those problems and move your cases forward. So two years in, we pulled the numbers just to see how it was going. And here's what we discovered. Those six pilot districts had just hit it out of the park. There was a 114% increase the number of trafficking defendants charged in the pilot districts compared with 12% in the rest of the country. In fact, those six little pilot districts had produced more convictions than the other 88 federal districts combined. Literally more than half the convictions in the entire United States came out of those six little pilot districts. So, like, okay, this is working, It's not really rocket science. This is how you build specialized skills in any category that matters to you if you think about it if you wanted to build specialized skills in any category it's always kind of a two-stage process it's mastering a set of core knowledge that you need and then applying skills with someone who's done it before over a long period of time so my parents were doctors it was the same thing right they go to medical school and acquire some core knowledge that they need but you don't put someone under the knife at the end of medical school right you have this whole process of residency where basically all you're doing is working with the senior surgeon day in and day out until you've built those skills to do it on your own. We're just applying that same tried-and-true methodology to building specialized trafficking skills. The good news is that the model that we just described is now spreading in the U.S. It's actually onto its second iteration, and the numbers are similarly quite strong. The bad news is that it was not spreading in the developing world where trafficking was just exploding. And then, just in the last 20 years, there have been two historic social transformations that have taken place and one key insight that has paved the way for this model to actually grow and spread in the developing world. First social transformation, there has been a tectonic shift in the legislative landscape. When I first learned about trafficking in the late 90s, only a small handful of countries in the world had meaningful anti-trafficking laws. In fact, the laws that I used as a federal prosecutor here in the US didn't even exist until the year 2000, and we were one of the early adopters. In just the last 20 years, we've gone from a small handful of countries having anti-trafficking laws to now every country in the world having an anti-trafficking law. What that means is that laws are no longer the problem. The laws in the books are there. The question is, are those laws actually going to be enforced? And laws are not much good if you've got police that don't really care. And for a long time, that was a huge, overwhelming obstacle. I kind of felt like, wow, I could go into a police station in a place like India, and we could have video evidence of a girl being offered for underage sex by a trafficker, And they kind of look at you as if I came into the local Vienna PD PD station with a picture of Blair going 40 a 35. Like, look, it's against the law. Here's the law. Here's the video. You know, come on. They're like, what? I got better things to do. Who cares? It's not that important. And it felt to me like, wow, until there's some kind of moral transformation en masse where these police and prosecutors actually value women in a different way, nothing's going to change. But there's been this incredible transformation in the last 20 years that has really created self-interested reasons for governments to care about improving their enforcement. I'm going to talk about just one. In the year 2000, the U.S. government created a new office within the State Department that's required to assign a grade to every country in the world on how well they're combating trafficking. And if you get a failing grade, then you're subject to economic sanctions from the U.S. Uh, Your own John Richmond, Ambassador Richmond, is now leading that office, and he's doing an amazing job. What that means is that all of a sudden, if you're a leader in a developing country, whether you're actually enforcing the law against trafficking, gets moved from the, you know, maybe I'll get to it one day pile, to like the urgent priority pile, because now it could affect my economic relationship with the U.S. So you start to see leaders kind of shouting down the chain of command to police and prosecutors and judges. You know, you guys got to get this fixed, because this is now a problem for me. These traffickers are now a roadblock, standing between me and the economic objectives that I care about. Well, the problem was the people at the bottom of the chain, these police and prosecutors and judges, are going, we don't know how. It's really specialized and we've never done this before. We don't know how to do it. It would be a little bit like if we were thrown into a developing world hospital, and given scrubs and a mask and a scalpel, and said, okay, now your family's livelihood depends on your ability to go do s- cataract surgery on the line of patients out the door. Like, it doesn't matter how incentivized I am, you can put a billion dollars on the table. I, I can't do cataract surgery. And we realized, until you solve that problem, until the people at the bottom of the chain have the capacity to respond to the directives coming down from their superiors, nothing is gonna meaningfully change. We're not gonna see any meaningful reduction in the prevalence of trafficking. And this led to the key insight that in some developing countries today, as many as 85% of the police don't even get basic training in criminal investigation. Think about what that means. They don't even get basic training in criminal investigation. If you go to the next slide, this is my son, Lawson, he's nine and he dressed up like a SWAT guy for Halloween. I remember having this realization like, oh my gosh, like 85% of the police in some of these countries have no more training than he does. <laughs> and he's just playing dress up, right? He, but honestly, in many ways, so are they. It's really actually incredibly sad. They, they look like police, they have uniforms and badges and batons, but many of them have no more training than the average person on the street. These two social movements and this key insight have paved the way for us to scale a model that now has has been successfully piloted in the US. We can now scale that to developing countries who are serious about measurably decimating trafficking, but don't have access to the model or the expertise to do it. It basically involves those same three steps. First, we partner with countries to help them build specialized units, teams of police and prosecutors that focus exclusively on human trafficking, and specialized courts that will fast track the cases. We put them through a mini, academy where we walk them through strategies that we've seen be effective, and then we hire former prosecutors, former FBI agents who move to that country and start officing with those units, working with them day in and day out on their cases, helping them solve case-related challenges, build their skills, and ultimately create that transparency and accountability that ensures there's no corruption in that unit. So we don't have to fix the entire criminal justice system. All we really need is one little unit to start pushing cases all the way through the criminal justice pipeline and creating that little bit of risk that starts to produce big drops in the prevalence of trafficking. Let's go to the next slide. The prayers of people. Wow, we're really moving forward quickly today. I hope that's not a hint. Um, one of the things that's been really striking is that in the developing world today, The traffickers have had a a much broader impact than I realized. And this is one of the insights that came out of the book that Gary Haugen and I wrote, the Locust Effect book. Traffickers today, what's happening is they're kind of acting as a bottleneck, choking out the efficacy of really important development and ministry efforts in the developing world. So just to make this really concrete, go back to Barry Glasser, and imagine that in that very community where these girls are being trapped in his home, imagine there's an incredible hospital. Staff with some of the best physicians in the world that are there to care for the poor. Maybe there's an awesome school that's been built to help educate young girls. Maybe there's a micro-lending enterprise or a church plant. Well, what happens when those ministries and the people who are called to serve there can't reach the people they're called to serve because they're literally walled off from the gospel by a trafficker's wall? What do you do? We can ask the hospital administrator to go take on a brothel or uh, a trafficking facility run by Barry Glasser. That's not going to happen. And what we realized is if we can wedge open that bottleneck, there's already a lot of bandwidth there to begin to address some of those other needs. So as, as we looked at the... Um, As we looked at what's happening in the world today, do you remember Barry Glasser, this this Ugandan, this German national that we started talking about before? Um, I'm going to actually, before I get to that, let me just mention I think there are three key things that are happening in the parable of the talents that are helpful lessons for how we deal with modern slavery in the world. First, our choices really matter. I used to think of the talent like roughly as like a dollar, $10. I don't know why, but when I heard the story growing up, I thought a talent's not that much. It's actually 20 years wages, one talent. So to put that into context, depending on how you calculate it, one talent is roughly the equivalent of almost a million dollars. The choices that these stewards were facing really mattered. We're entrusted with significant responsibility and real opportunity to bring tangible hope in the kingdom of God. Second, although we're stewards and not owners, God still gives us a generous return. There's just something about putting our talents out there and trusting him to bless them that allows us to have leveraged impact, a larger impact than we thought we could have, and to more fully enter into joy. Remember what the, what the master said? He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. His joy is our return. Third, the enemy of that joy is fear. We know from the text that the steward with the talent was afraid, but he was afraid of the wrong things. The steward was afraid to lose his talent, but the bigger risk is that we can genuinely miss it. We can be so concerned with backing away from the fire, as I was, that we can genuinely miss what God is doing in the world. By playing it safe, we can actually miss out on making real kingdom impact and entering into joy. Ultimately, our hope is in the character of God, who's not only invited us to care for the larger family he has adopted us into, but also seems to delight, have you ever noticed this? He seems to delight in demonstrating his glory by delivering the most stunning victories when the odds are so stacked against them that success seems completely impossible. Think about it. The birth of a Jewish nation from a 90-year-old barren womb. Two million slaves simply walking away from the most powerful army in the ancient world without so much as a scratch. A pimply preteen with a sling and stone vanquishing the Philistine giant. Gideon's relentlessly pared down army, conquering the vast military regime of the Midianites. Joshua's men bringing down the fortified walls of Jericho without a single blow. The stunning conversion of a first century Christian hunter into the leading apologist for the budding Christian movement. And the vindication of a peasant carpenter's claim to be the promised Messiah and incarnate God after a seemingly decisive and humiliating defeat on the cross. And on and on it goes. The booming percussion of these victories pulsing through the scriptures is so dominant that God's sheer delight in delivering them might be called one of his central character traits. And now he's doing it again. Glasser, the German national who was trafficking young girls in Uganda, he's no longer doing that. Last year, the equivalent of the attorney general in Uganda sent Rachel, who, is one of a, who's, who was tapped to be the prosecutor in Uganda who's going to oversee trafficking. He sent her and an investigator, a group of investigators and, and prosecutors and victim specialists to our Global Human uh, Trafficking Academy in October. After they got back home to Uganda, they started working with our team on the ground to put together a raid. And they did a raid on Barry's house. And in the process, 11 underage girls were freed some as young as five years old. Not only that, but Glasser was actually arrested, and despite his high-priced lawyer and his best efforts, the judge denied bail, and he is now getting ready to stand trial for his crimes. In fact, trial in his case starts tomorrow morning. This made news not only in the Ugandan papers, but also in the Independent, this UK paper, This is sending a message to traffickers like Barry that it's too risky to engage in the crime. And now those talents are multiplying. The Ugandan government has actually agreed not to merely build a specialized anti-trafficking police unit, but an entire human trafficking department in its police force, staffed with 250 plus police and staff all across the country, including staff in every station in the country. This is incredibly joyful. Do you see how God delights in multiplying our talents? I wanna close with this. If you think about the grand arc of history, for literally millennia, slavery has flourished. And for the vast majority of that time, it's flourished legally. The countries in Western civilization that we we read about, It was legal. It's on the books. It's just in the last 200 years or so that we started to see this movement saying, no, slavery's wrong and it should be illegal. And in fact, it's just in the last 20 years that we've seen these incredibly important social transformations where it's now illegal in every country in the world. One by one, the dominoes that have held back the fall of widespread trafficking in the world are falling. Laws are no longer the problem. Political will is no longer the problem. In fact, the thing that traffickers are, sta- are, are counting on, the traffickers last stand, what they're utterly counting on is that police and prosecutors will not have the capacity to actually go out and enforce those laws. This is the tangible hope that God is inviting us to steward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for granting us the dignity of being entrusted with real choices that really matter. Lord, we can sometimes be afraid. It can feel big and overwhelming, and I am tempted to bury my talent in the sand. Lord, please spare me from that loss. We want to be with you, and you are out in the world. And you are blessing your work there and you are multiplying the impact and you are allowing us the incredible gift of entering more fully into your joy. May we boldly steward the tangible hope that we are seeing for the sake of your kingdom and our joy. Amen.